we have an opportunity here to use our physical space to teach children some skills that they're going to need in their life. Why would we pass that up? We can't expect students to be responsible if we never give them responsibility. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Tracy Tinley, a grade three and four teacher from Ontario, to talk about flexible seating and the influence the physical environment can have on both students and teachers. Tracy has also taught at the University of Ottawa, and in 2015, she was given the Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence. We hope that the podcast format of this show will allow you to pursue some form of wellness as you're listening and learning whether it's exercise or sitting down and do something that feels relaxing. Hopefully that is a possibility for you today. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. This is exciting to to talk about flexible seating. I always like to start by asking guests what they have found are their go-to habits for taking care of their well-being, whether it's exercise or it may or may not be podcast compatible, but I'm curious, what are the things that you have found that help you to stay well? So um, this is this is definitely a work in progress for me. I would say the one thing is walking. I tend to do a lot of, uh, we have three dogs. So walking the, uh, the dogs and trying to figure out ways to be a little more present during the walk. I do listen to podcasts. I try as much as possible for them to not be educational because I noticed in my spare time, I do have a hard time turning off sometimes. So true crime, (laughs) which is (laughs) probably probably not the most relaxing subject matter, but that tends to be my go-to because it it allows me to just turn off for that few minutes and uh, recharge. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Tell us a little bit about your teaching experience and current role in the education context. Sure. So I've been teaching for 23 years. I've had a a variety of roles in my career. I started as a primary teacher. My very first class was a grade one, two, and I, I stuck in primary for a little bit. And then I've now basically shifted into the junior grade. So in in our province, that's grades four, five, and six. And that's sort of where I've landed the past couple of years. I did have the opportunity a few years ago to be in our board. It's called an instructional coach. So I was able to go into a variety of different schools and offer in-service to teachers. I did that for three years. I found that very rewarding. I do feel my best work comes in a classroom where I am with children on a daily basis. In addition to the things that I've done with our school board, I've had a a couple of other opportunities. I have taught at the University of Ottawa as a seconded professor. So I taught curriculum development to both first and second year teacher candidates. And I've also done some work with an amazing organization called the Critical Thinking Consortium, which is nonprofit out in BC. And I, I wrote one book for them. And then I've done some other projects as well. So you've got a lot of experience to draw on as we talk today about how the physical environment can affect teaching and our students. And I think this is something that we don't often pay attention to in the education field, though it is part of the comprehensive school health framework, the social and physical environment. So right now I'm in my office and there's a nice window that lets in a lot of natural light. There's a comfortable chair in the corner if I need to sit down and read something for longer. It took a while, but I found a good Ikea chair, the the right height. I can sit out and type for a while. Also, I'm surrounded by books that I love, that I've been challenged by or learned from, and photos of my family. There's all these elements that work in my office right now as I'm recording this that make me like being in this room, that help me be productive and able to focus in this room. And I bring that up because I think the physical environment that we learn or work in affects us more than we realize. It's something that designers and architects think about a lot, this impact of the physical environment, but it's not often something that teachers think about. 
You have shared photos of your classroom with the world on Twitter and other places, and it's clear that you've put a lot of thought into your classroom setup. And so I want to talk about that. But first, what is the feeling you want a student to have when they enter your classroom, and why is that important to you? Sure. So just listening to you describe your office, I was struck by the way that you described it. You could tell the thought and the care that has gone into that design. So there is a reason for all of those things that that you mentioned you have in your office. And I think that that's pretty much the overwhelming thing that I want students to notice is that when they come in, I want them to feel cared for. And so one of the ways that I can do that the second they step in is for them to enter an environment that really has been put together in a thoughtful and careful way to support them. I think mm-hmm. that's probably the, the biggest one. A couple of other things I was I was thinking about is this idea of home. And so we know that our children spend a lot of hours at school. And in fact, in terms of their waking time, it can feel as though uh, that some of them spend more time at school than they do in their own homes. So I wanted that classroom to have that home feeling. I wanted it to feel calm. I wanted it to feel safe, I guess would be another good word. And basically that low stakes feeling so that when they entered the room, they were already in a state where they could feel relaxed and at ease. That's pretty much the overwhelming feeling. Mm-hmm. And we will share, you said it's okay to share some photos of your oh, sure. yep. of your classroom so that people can get a sense of what we're talking about. But it really is a beautiful space, but I wouldn't say that it's like overly stimulating. It is mm-hmm. very calm and it feels not institutional yes. <laughs> at yes. all. Great. <laughs> That's what we're going for. <laughs> and and I think your point about being overstimulized, there's a presence out there right now where we're sometimes equating a put together classroom with a Pinterest nightmare that uh, that has gone wrong. Because I do think the less is more rule mm-hmm. could definitely be used a little bit more in classrooms because we tend to pack a lot of stuff in when when really we should be removing things. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of those details. Sure. So what have you done in your classroom to try and create an ideal learning environment? So there's uh, a couple of things, and you've touched on the institutional feel. I think that has always been the first thing I try to do. Even if I'm not bringing in any outside furniture, trying to figure out ways where I can make that classroom feel a little less sterile. That's my first thing that I think about. The second thing that I, I really try to do is sometimes we don't realize the way that our classroom is set up communicates messages of power Hmm. and who has the power in the classroom and who doesn't. And so one of the things I I try to make sure that I'm cognizant of is that my space in the classroom should not really be more than what an individual student needs to have. I get that there's certain things as teachers, you know, we, we do need to have a specific desk area and you need a spot to put, you know, your forms and things like that. But I try to make sure that my footprint in the classroom does not overwhelm or overpower what another child's footprint would be. Mm -hmm. I have never thought about that, but those teacher desks are massive. (laughs) Oh, they are. They really are. (laughs) And then you add in your filing cabinets and uh, yeah, and it does send a message, you know, that I am the most important person in this room and I need the most space. And that, that is really what I am trying to work against, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you also, in your ideal classroom, you like to have a variety of seating options as well. I do. I try to give options for sure. I also try, this is something that maybe people don't really think about when they think about their classroom. But in a traditional classroom, everybody is basically sitting at the same height or the same level. And that can really bring your volume in your room up. So I do try to introduce different levels of seating. And it's more than just the aesthetic. There there actually is a functional reason behind that. So I try to have seating where students are sitting closer to the floor, whether that's on a cushion or a, a lower stool. I also try to create seating that is elevated where I bring tables or desks higher than what the traditional desk height would be. And that 
that alone does wonders for sort of moderating the volume of your classroom because it has it so that students are no longer competing with their voices against each other. And it visually, it, it adds an interesting dynamic too, but there is a functional purpose towards changing the, the level of seating. And do you let students choose where they want to sit? I do. So we don't have a seating plan. Uh, there's a, a quote I found a while ago where it says something to the effect of, come as you are, there's no plan here, we're, we're basically a family. And that's the vibe I want. So in your living room, there's no seating plan. Um, <laughs> no. You know, anytime, and this is just a general rule, I think, if there's ever a choice that I can give a student to make, as opposed to me making it for them, that's always a good thing. And so I do have a very flexible approach to giving students the power and the responsibility, because we know with great power comes great responsibility, to making those seating choices for themselves. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, in the Comprehensive School Health Framework, the social and physical environment is one of the key components that can be a tool for helping the entire school community. Do you think that there is a relationship with our environment and our well-being? How do you think your class environment might help students and yourself feel better? A hundred percent. And, you know, you touched on that with the idea of, you know, architects and designers. There's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason why there's an HGTV channel. And IKEA is, is making a, a pretty penny off of all of us. But I do think that the design of the classroom does have a direct impact on our emotional well-being. What I try to make sure with, with our environment is there's a balance. I want a classroom that feels orderly without feeling sterile. Mm -hmm. I want a classroom that's functional, but also comforting. Because we have to recognize that students, particularly our most vulnerable students sometimes, and I, and I say that both emotionally vulnerable and academically vulnerable, but the difficulty is that with, with these spaces, we have students coming in sometimes at a heightened state of anxiety from wherever that has come from. And so we want our classrooms to serve those students in a way to kind of bring everybody down a notch because you can't learn when you're feeling overwhelmed. You can't learn when you're feeling anxious and nervous. And coming into classrooms you know, with desks in rows, I feel anxious. It, it feels like something really dramatic and important is going to happen in this room, as opposed to that feeling when you walk into your living room, where everything just feels a little more chill, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And have you observed, do you think that students do calm down when they come into your room? Is, have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. I, I've had students who in the past have had difficulties with self-regulation. And I've had people try to say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so isn't going to do well in this room because it's a free-for-all. And, and the one thing I think people misunderstand about flexible seating is that a flexible seating classroom is not chaotic. It is not anything goes free-for-all, if you will. What a flexible seating classroom does do is it empowers children to take more ownership for their self-regulation. And a lot of times, the behaviors we see in students are the direct result of being put in situations where they can't self-regulate easily. Mm -hmm. So the, the flexible seating classroom actually has negated a lot of the typical uh, disruptive behaviors you, you might see with students. That's reason enough, I think, to try give this a try. And absolutely, but not to mention the pedagogical reasons too. What are some of the benefits? Um, let's get into that of creating an activity permissive learning environment, or what you've called a flexible seating classroom. What does the research say, and what have you observed from personal experience? So I think the biggest one is the power of choice. We know that that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. We know that when we are given a choice, that that directly impacts our motivation. It directly impacts our uh, willingness to engage in, in something if we feel that there's a bit of a choice there. So providing children with the opportunity to make a choice, you know, you can't choose whether you're doing the math or not. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a must do, my friend. But, uh, but giving them the choice about whether they want to do that math, say, at the high table or whether they want to put their math sheet on a clipboard and hang out on the carpet for a little bit longer. It's giving students choice 
where we can so that when they are asked to do things where there isn't a choice, they're more able to come into that to that situation in a better mindset. I mentioned that in my personal experience, I have seen a decrease in in what we would normally consider the some of the disruptive behaviors in a classroom. I've noticed a, a sharp decrease in the uh, ever popular washroom journeys mm-hmm. <laughs> because when you notice students, and it's interesting because this year, of course, I do not have a flexible seating classroom. And let me tell you, my washroom log <laughs> is very interesting. I can see the children who are finding it very difficult to self-regulate because they're having to stay in their desk all day. And so that washroom break tends to be their only ability to get up and move. So any child you have in a classroom where they find it difficult to sit for long periods of time, whether that's a diagnosis of you know, ADHD or, or whether it's just a, a child who is a kinesthetic learner and needs to move, the flexible seating classroom allows for that to happen in a very organic and natural way, as opposed to you know, having to schedule that structured body break where the child has to now leave the room, for example. So I've seen the classroom become just a more inclusive space for children who have different learning needs, for sure. And what do you think are the benefits in terms of learning? Have you noticed that? Absolutely. So I think it's the collaboration piece. I think we forget, or maybe we don't recognize, that learning is a very social event. And we do need to ensure that students have the ability to collaborate. And so when we place them in rows, when we place them in desks, the message we send is that learning is an individual activity. And there are certainly times where that has to be the case, you know, in terms of assessment. But a lot of the time in a classroom should be spent in conversation. A lot of the time in the classroom should be spent with children working together to solve problems because the real world is not a place like very few jobs are you able to go in sit at your desk shut the door and not talk to anybody and and that's really you know when you think of the traditional classroom that's what we're asking students to do and so in some ways that traditional classroom does not prepare children for you know, 21st century learning or or the workplace even, where we are expected to have all of these very well-developed collaboration skills. Well, it's hard to have that when you're never given the opportunity to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that physical environment can be one way to foster that collaboration and set students up for success in learning from each other. Absolutely. We have unfortunately been forced to move away from some of the more flexible seating options because of the safety guidelines for the pandemic. Because you have had flexible seating before in your class, I wonder if you could comment on the differences that you've observed now that we've have to, and hopefully it's temporary, but sit further apart from each other. It's kind of been an unplanned experiment that you now have conducted. You got a control of flexible seating and then going to less flexible seating. How is that going? What are you noticing? And how are you still trying to keep that same feeling in your class as we deal with these exceptional times? This has had a huge, huge impact on my teaching this year. And I'm very fortunate to be in a building where I have colleagues who have along with me come on this flexible seating journey. And so this has become our number one topic of discussion in how we're trying to work around the situation because it's it's been very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. I would say the one thing that it has taught me is the importance, and I always knew it was important, but having a gathering area in a classroom, and I don't care whether it's a grade one class or a grade eight class, but having a space where you can bring all of your students together in closer proximity to one another is absolutely huge because I've noticed this year with my students, it's very hard for them to take risks when they are spread all across the room. And even putting your hand up, like when you think about it, even putting your hand up to participate in a classroom discussion, there's a different feeling of doing that when you're sitting on a carpet surrounded by your peers, as opposed to being on display at a desk and then all heads kind of turn and look at you. You know, we also have the added disadvantage where you can't read the facial expressions of your of your peers. Yeah. 
So now you're putting yourself in a situation where you're taking a risk, you're putting your hand up, you're sharing your idea, and you can't even tell how that's being received. It's really, really done a number. Kids that were maybe normally quiet in a good year have almost become mute because it's just such a scary prospect to take that risk. So the one thing I've, I've really noticed is my teaching heavily depends on my ability to gather small groups and even large groups. My teaching has always sort of had this ebb and flow where I may start with a large group discussion, but then let kids know that it's okay to not know what to do still and to stick around for a few minutes at the carpet area for us to do a few more examples together. I can't do that this year. So it's it's meaning that students who are struggling, it's me going to their desk and now everybody sees right. that. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Like in, in grade four, you become very much aware of being different. And I've noticed that I have children now who are less likely to ask for help because it is so overwhelmingly apparent when you need Mrs. Tinley because now she's standing at your desk as opposed to sticking around on the carpet with, you know, maybe three or four others, and it's not such a big deal. So that's definitely had a huge impact on my teaching. Mm -hmm. The collaboration has also, or lack thereof, has also had a, a huge impact. So we can't have students working in groups the way we would normally. What I see as a, a huge disadvantage is the fact that I can't, in my math program, I I really like to give problems that are perhaps a little bit beyond their grasp, you know, and my line with kids is always, if you already knew the answer, it's not a problem, right? I'm, I'm not in the business of giving out easies. So <laughs> what I'm finding is that because they can't work in a partnership the way we used to, I've had to really change what I can give students because they don't have the support to have somebody with them to work through that. So my independent work has really changed because I can't use those partner experiences to to sort of help them wade into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of, I don't know if you want me to talk about ways that we've tried to deal with that at, at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I think that'd be interesting. So there's a there's a couple of things that I've noticed is helping try to get that uh, flexible feel <laughs> while, mm. while still not touching each other. So the one thing is we are required, of course, to keep a seating plan, and that's for contact tracing and, and whatnot. But one of the things we are allowed to do is to adjust that seating plan as long as we keep a record of it. And so as time-consuming as it is, every two weeks, my students know that our desks will be shuffled. They'll still be have their individual desk, but we will literally pick our desks up and we will move into a different arrangement. And so that's important for a few reasons. In a classroom right now, when you're sitting in the very back row, that's a very different learning experience than the child who is sitting in the very front row. Mm-hmm. And so from an equity piece, I've tried to ensure that students are having the opportunity to move around that space while still staying in a desk, if that makes sense. Now, it's it's difficult because uh, when you feel like you've hit the perfect arrangement to think that in two weeks you're going to have to find the, find find another one, but it's worth it because it's at least allowing them to be around different peer groups because I think I underestimated the power of how friendships, relationships, and community are developed in a classroom. And I think a lot of that is coming from the flexible seating and and the partner work and things like that. But it's hard for them to develop relationships with their peers when there's only really four children that are close enough to them to have a conversation, right? Without yelling across the room. And so they eat at their desks. I'm trying to ensure that we're shuffling so that everybody is having an opportunity to kind of get to know one another. Mm. Because of course, the you know the other uh, difficulty here is when they go outside to play at recess, they have to play only within their cohort. So only within their class group. And in some ways that has strengthened our community because it really does bring you together as a team. But in some ways, that, that's that been devastating for some children because, you know, if your best friend is in another class, it, it used to be, well, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll see each other at recess. Well, 
that's changed. So I'm trying as much as I can to to really strengthen and, and nurture the relationships within the classroom, because really, that's all they've got. They've only got each other, whether they're outside or inside. So that's been a huge um, part of my mindset. The other thing I've been using a lot, and I wish I could take credit for this, but this comes from actually a, a student. I noticed very early on that when I would make a comment that this one child, when she particularly resonate with that comment, she started using this hand signal, which was clearly taught to her by a previous teacher. And it's if anybody has sort of done some of the math training, we use these hand signals for kids to sort of be able to tell us what their understanding is. So the best way I can describe it is if you make like the hang 10 sign, you know, Mm -hmm. like the surfing sign. So you sort of fold your three fingers down and you leave your thumb and your pinky up and you kind of shake it back and forth. So it's it's not like waving your hand in the air. It's a lot more discreet than that. But what I noticed was she was doing that as a way to show me that she agreed with what I was saying. Because she can't show me that with her face. It's really hard to show interest and engagement with just your eyes. And so we, st- we had a conversation about that. And what's happened now in our classroom is they will do that with each other now. So if I have a child who shares an answer... And six others had their hand up to share that exact same answer. They will use the signal after the first child has shared to show them that they agree. But what's what's really amazing about this is you can see like that child who gets that immediate feedback from their peers sits a little taller, feels a little better. So we're, we're trying to use alternatives to what we normally would have been able to do, which is smiling at each other. Or, you know, if we were sitting close together at the carpet, kind of like, you know, tapping them on the, on the leg to say, yeah, 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 me too. So these hand signals have, have really, really helped us to nurture that too. Oh, that's great. So would you say then that this experience has recommitted you to flexible seating once it's over? Are you even more (laughs) sure that you'll do it? Oh, yeah. I'm counting, anxiously counting the minutes. I have managed to sneak in one little, I wouldn't say it's flexible, but I have a space at the back of my classroom that was very unused. And I realized, so what 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 I actually had to do, I'll back up for one second here, is one of the things that I think is so critical if you're going to go into this flexible seating journey is that there isn't one right way to set up a classroom. And I think sometimes we can forget that. So at the beginning of this year, I set my classroom up in what I thought would be the best arrangement possible. And I very quickly realized that while I don't have a teacher desk, I have a very small table, which is a little bit bigger than than a student's desk, but not much. But I had set that up at the front of the classroom, thinking that that would be the best space for me to be. Well, sure enough, I I realized about a month in that that's pretty valuable real estate that I'm taking up. And since I never sit at my desk when the children are, are in class, it seemed silly to me to have my desk taking up two spaces in the front row when that front row is, is such a hot (laughs) commodity. So I removed my teacher, like I don't have a desk anymore in the classroom space. So what I'm using is this counter that's sort of built into one of our walls that children can't use because it's attached and and you can't sit there. So I've moved my desk area there, but what it's allowed me to do is put that teacher desk at the back of our room now and I've put it on risers, on like bed risers if you will. And so I I'm sort of tr- slowly introducing that couple of elements that we would typically equate with flexible seating. And that has done wonders for my mindset. I now have a little space at the back of the room where I can't call four children, but I can call three Mm. and three is better than none. So, and because it's at the back of my room, I'm sort of finding ways to kind of reinsert that privacy piece. So for a student who is struggling and maybe doesn't want that on blast in front of the whole room, Mm -hmm. I can pull them to the back of the room now and have a quiet conversation as opposed to me hovering over your desk like a... like a dementor in from Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, there's, there's been a few little wins along the way. You know, you just realize you're like, wow, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to have a rectangle yeah. <laughs> table. <laughs> so, so you, you, you start to realize how good you had it. 
and um, and you dial back your expectations for sure. You won't take that for granted again. I will not be taking that for granted. No. Let's talk about practicalities and logistics. So assuming it's safe and we're allowed to do so, if someone wanted to take a more serious look at classroom setup, where would you recommend they start? So I think what you have to remember when you look at, so even my classroom, for example, when you look at that classroom, that did not happen overnight. So that's a seven-year journey that, that you're really seeing there. It's taken me seven years to move to what I would, would really call at this point a 100% flexible seating environment. So the way that it started, and I think this is where you have to start, is I started with only school furniture still. The first way that I started was you want to try to make your classroom, you want to stress that it's not territory owned by anybody. And that's really challenging because children <laughs> and humans are very territorial. We are creatures of habit. And so what you want to try to do when you're starting this out is to try to remove this thinking of I own this space. So you may have students in desks, you may assign them desks. But the first thing I started doing was you can't keep your belongings in your desk. And there's a reason for that. One of the things that we did was we started storing our belongings centrally, so on a bookshelf. And what that does is even though you may still have your children assigned to desks, when you're doing partner or group work and they go to that space, it feels less like Tyson's desk, for example, if Tyson's stuff isn't all over the place. You can still gradually enter this because for some people, that's very overwhelming to think that the children don't have assigned spots. So the baby step here is, sure, have them assigned to desks, but have them not be able to keep things in it. Just, just try that out first. So that would be my first recommendation. Then I would start to introduce those levels that I spoke about. So again, this is still all school furniture. You can have your custodian or you can, you can take an Allen key and those traditional student desks can be lowered down to a height that could be a kneeling desk. So that's free. You can also find just what we wouldn't normally consider student furniture. So those tables that teachers might use to pull a small group to, like a round table, for example, those round tables also typically have adjustable legs that can be lowered to the ground. The other thing I would suggest is the less is more, for sure, because sometimes we think that it has to have a million different options. So typically in a flexible seating classroom, if you had, let's say you had 25 students, you want to make sure you have more than 25 seating spaces. That's my experience anyway. So I like to have between 28 and 29, like always about four more than what you actually need. The other piece here is I'm not comfortable with children eating their lunch on their lap. So in my room, there has to be enough space for everybody to be eating their lunch at a table surface. So I don't include clipboard spaces. I don't include, you know, the beanbag chair where you can kind of go and, and lay with your book or whatever. I don't include that as, a, as an actual physical space in, in the room. So really, when you include all of those additional ones in, you're probably looking at almost close to one and a half times the number of students you have in your room in terms of working spaces. Because if you only have the number of spaces that equals the number of your students, you're going to find yourself, you're, you're going to get into a hunger game situation <laughs> where you're going to have children basically racing to get to what they think is the sort of prime spot in the room. There's ways that you can negate that and, and work around it. But it goes back to an earlier comment that I made where people say, oh, flexible seating is a free-for-all. Quite honestly, I will tell you, having your students in designated desks is easier than a flexible seating classroom. Mm -hmm. So flexible seating requires energy, effort, and thought. It requires a very reflective stance because it's, it's not something that you can just throw a bunch of pillows on the ground and lower your tables and tell them, you know, have at it. There's a very deliberate way that you have to roll this out. And even along the way, there are certain things that you, you would have to talk about that you wouldn't have to in a desk. So there's three areas that I think you really have to consider thoughtfully if you are going to go into a flexible seating. The first is the organizational piece. A lot of times when people come to me, 
and say, oh, I tried it, it didn't work. It's almost always because of a lack of forethought for organization. So in a flexible seating classroom, you're going to have to consider how students are going to store belongings if they're no longer sitting at, in, at individual desks. And so the analogy that I've used with children in the past is it's sort of like packing to go on an airplane. And so you have your carry-on luggage, and then you have your stowaway compartment under the plane. And this is probably one of my favorite things about the first day of school, because if you're an elementary teacher, you will know that on the first day of school, they waltz in there with 70,000 markers and, you know, they've got uh, a million binders and, and erasers that can light up and all this stuff. So it really requires them to pare down to the essentials. And I think that is a good thing because a lot of what they come with are distractions. And so our, our rule is you get one carry-on pencil case. So that lives on our front bookshelf. And everything you would need on a daily basis, we talk about this as a class, what are the essentials? What are the must-haves versus the nice-to-haves? And then sometimes some of the things they've brought, they realize themselves, I don't need this at school. So it goes back home. Or we have a central storage for things that we wouldn't use on a, on a daily basis. So that pairs down a lot of the stuff that can kind of get in the way of learning. The organization is huge. The transitions and routines also require you to think carefully about that because what could happen is you can have what you thought was a flexible seating environment, but when you really look at it, the same kids are sitting in the same places every day. And that happens more often than you would think. Sometimes we think that, oh, they're allowed to go anywhere. They're going to go wild. They are creatures of habit. They will want to, at the beginning, probably sit in the same spot every day. And that is all the more reason I think we need to really nurture this idea of what flexible means and what having a flexible mindset is. So at the beginning of the year, I do what's called a staggered release. So if we start on the carpet and it's now time to choose working spaces to eliminate that rush to the quote unquote cool table, right? Because there's the social piece in here as well of who's going to be sitting with who. I sometimes will, if I notice there are children who perhaps are not having an opportunity to sit at different spots, I might let them go first and choose. Mm. I might try to ensure that if I'm noticing the same four boys or girls all sitting together, I'll stagger their release so that that won't be able to happen. So th the other thing I did, uh, not this year, of course, but the previous year, I had a slide that I would put up on the board and it was called Super 8, like the Super 8 Motel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was there were basically eight stations in our room and it's a challenge. So I would say to them, oh, okay, listen, this time, before you pick your spot, I have a challenge for you. Could you sit in a spot that maybe you haven't sat at yet this week, right? So you're putting that on them to kind of recognize where they're falling into habits or where they might be getting stuck. And then I would broaden it too to say things like, I want you to challenge yourself. Can you sit at a table with somebody that maybe you haven't been a partner with this week? And so it's all very thoughtful and deliberate because if left to their own devices, they will tend to stagnate and just sit in one spot. And eventually, you know, as you get through the year, of course, there's going to be natural, there's preference. And so I'm not going to insist that a child sits at a coffee table when they find that they learn better in a chair. But at the beginning, you have to almost entice them to explore these options because they're not used to having these choices. Yeah. And so until they can kind of really experiment, they don't really know what works best for their learning. And I think the learning skills, the responsibility and the, and the self-regulation is huge because if you've made a poor choice, and you know, I always say like, if I sit next to my best friends at a staff meeting, it's not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> you have to recognize when you have set yourself up for not an optimal learning situation. So if you're sitting next to your friend and you're not getting any work done, guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to pick your stuff up and move. But see how they can't do that. So if if we've put them in a desk next to somebody who's a distraction, unbeknownst to us, they can't move. They're stuck there. And in some classes, the seating plan doesn't change all year. So think about that for a second. You know, sometimes we have disruptive students and we try to put the, the children beside them that we think are are going to be able to ignore that. Well, imagine you're that child who's having to sit and ignore constant distraction for an entire year. Yeah. Like 
that's not fair either, you know? And I always say, like, when I see a child getting up and moving, I say, oh, I love a child who can make a better choice. So it's all about, sure, maybe you made a bad choice at the beginning. It's never too late to turn it around. So if you notice 10 minutes are into the math period and you don't have a single thing on your paper, get up and move. And again, because you have those extra spaces in your room, there's always an opportunity to have made up to make a better choice. So that's, that's really key. I like that reinforcing of when students are seizing upon that choice to direct their own optimal learning. That's such an important skill for life. Absolutely. What are some of the affordable strategies for changing our classrooms since we don't usually get funds for this kind of thing? How have you managed to do this on not too generous of a budget? So that surprised me because the video that I posted two years ago, which again, for lack of a better term, went viral. Mm-hmm. My, my son assures me that, uh, mom, it, you're not viral. <laughs> <laughs> but it got a lot of views. And I guess I wasn't anticipating, I had a lot of positive comments, but there was one particular thread that really came after me for the cost involved. People really thought that I was going off to Ikea and spending thousands and thousands of dollars, when in fact, a lot of the furniture in my room did come from my own basement. I mean, to the point where our neighbors thought I was moving out. <laughs> but we we have a lot of uh, furniture that we're holding on to that can easily come into the classroom. And of course, uh, in a normal year, I mentioned earlier that you can get away with creating some different table settings just by lowering or raising your existing school furniture. So lowering desks cost nothing. Uh, it's just an Allen key. And even kids aren't too fussy. Like they don't mind kneeling on the floor. Uh, Some of them really, who are those kinesthetic learners, they like the pressure of that floor on their legs. Like that actually helps them focus. Another thing that I use to raise things, so you don't need a a fancy $500 standing desk. You can get very inexpensively things that are called bed risers. So it's what people use to raise their bed up so that they can use it, the underneath part as storage. Mm -hmm. So that's, those are $20 for a set of four. You do that with a table, you now have this beautiful stool height cafe table, if you will. A lot of my furniture that isn't school issued does come from, like I said, my basement. So my old, our old dining room table or or whatnot. A lot of times I'll go to garage sales in the summer. And when you play the the teacher card, <laughs> sometimes that like I had a whole beautiful, the four stools that are seen at one of my high tables, they were given to me. They were just given to me because I, I explained what I was doing. And we have something in Ontario called Kijiji, which is like a, an online garage sale. We have it too. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. So you play the teacher card as well. You say, I'm looking for this for my classroom. Would you take, I've never had somebody say no. And then of course I show up and I, I'm like showing them pictures of my classroom and they're like, yeah, yeah, lady, just... <laughs> Just take the stools and go. (laughs) But you'd be surprised at the interest and willingness of people around you to support this too. One of those Kijiji pickups, I had the, the man actually say to me, like we had settled on a price for this one particular chair. And when I showed him what I was trying to do, he said, this is the classroom I needed as a child. Please take this chair. I don't want any money for it. So that's not gonna happen all the time, but I'm telling you, this is this is something that really strikes a chord. In, in families, I've had parents offer to donate things. I've had a parent come to meet the teacher and sort of walk in and see how different our classroom felt. And she, she said, what can I give you? What do you need? And I said, well, actually, I would love to have some cushions to go on these milk crates because that's what we were using for stools at the time. And she was like, done. Here you go. So sometimes we forget that parents are on our side in in a lot of this. And so getting donations from people has really sort of fostered my classroom in a lot of ways. Absolutely. There are a lot of stakeholders that care about schools that don't necessarily show up to the school every day. Oh, and and I have to just say one more thing. Sometimes people are curious what the custodians think. Mm -hmm. And, And I will tell you, from my experience, they love the flexible seating classroom because it's the community piece. Like we don't go, we don't leave at the end of the day until everybody takes a minute and puts this place back together. So 
It's no longer you're just responsible for your desk. Guess what? You don't get to eat your lunch and leave your spaghetti all over your desk because that's not your desk and somebody's going to want to do their science at, at that spot. So I guess you better clean it up, right? And they're very good at not calling each other out because it's not a negative thing. But, you know, we have a broom and that broom is used throughout the day to ensure that we're keeping our space. Like we have a duty to each other to respect this space. So when our custodian comes in at night, there isn't a million pencil crayons on the floor, right? So the custodians love the flexible seating classroom because they really do see that the students are really taking responsibility and ownership for the physical learning environment. Oh, that's great. How have you talked about your classroom design with administrators or parents who may, you know, sort of wonder what's going on with this classroom that looks so different from a typical class? Have you ever had to justify or explain your approach? So I've had very supportive administration in the past. The key though here has always been that I've been proactive. So they know that this is not just, Tracy's not just building her Barbie dream house up here. Like there is a reason for why I am making these decisions. And I'm very passionate, I guess is the word, and very transparent about why I'm doing that. The difference, and this is, I think, key, the difference between what I would say my classroom is from maybe a classroom that looks slick on the surface is that my classroom, I like to feel, is made for students and keeps them in mind because there's a difference between, you you sometimes see on Instagram, these people with thousands and thousands of followers with these classrooms that look like they're right out of a magazine. But a lot of times when you really look carefully at those photos, what you see are classrooms that are very reflective of the teacher and not the students. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between making a classroom pretty and making a classroom functional and supportive. And so I haven't had pushback from parents or administrators because I think they get it. And so one of the things with parents is, you know, I'm, I'm also mindful that when they come to my classroom, it's going to look very different from what their concept of school is. Mm-hmm. And so I try to <laughs> prepare them for that. So our first September newsletter, I put it right in there. We have a flexible seating classroom. What does that mean? Because I'm not going to lie, there are children who do come on the first day. Like not everybody is like, yay, flexible seating. You have children who do come on the first day with their 4,000 marker sets ready to move into their desk, Right. And then suddenly they realize, holy cow, I, 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 I am not going to be able to keep all this stuff. And so it's definitely a shift. And so I have to explain to parents why the flexible seating classroom is being done. And I always bring it back to our learning skills. And, and your, your earlier question about that classroom being a teacher, we have an opportunity here to use our physical space to teach children some skills that they're going to need in their life. Why would we pass that up? We can't expect students to be responsible if we never give them responsibility. So at Meet the Teacher, when when they came last year, I sort of cleverly or sneakily, I guess is probably the better word, I had made a PowerPoint filled with slides of their child at work so they could see what that classroom looked like uh, during the day. And each time I would put a picture up of the children working, I'd have the word beside that matched the learning skill. So collaboration, independence, self-regulation initiative, all those skills that they see on the report card, right? Look, our classroom is actually nurturing those skills. I've never had a parent push back on the flexible seating. And I think it's because of the work we do ahead of time to communicate. This isn't just about making a space look different. It isn't just about making the classroom look Pinterest pretty. There's really strategic and purposeful decisions that are being made here, and they're being made to support your child's learning. Mm. That, that I think is the key. That makes a lot of sense. I know I would be happy to walk into your classroom or for my kids to go to your <laughs> class. How would you accommodate a student that might need that structure and predictability in their class and really do prefer a more typical chair and desk? So in my flexible seating classroom, there's always, always at least one pod of four traditional student desks. Because if I have a child who really does prefer that chair desk situation, I make sure that is always available to them. Um, It's not all coffee tables and, you know, beanbag chairs or whatever. So that solves a lot of issues right there. If I have a student, and typically it's it's a student who has very specific learning needs. So in one situation, um, I had a student with autism. And so he required, uh, as part of his 
IEP or his learning plan was a predictable learning environment. So for him, it didn't make sense to put added stress on him to have him, you know, be in a constant state of flux. So like I mentioned, he had a desk. It was his desk. He, however, was not allowed to store things in it. He kept his pencil case just like everyone else, but that has worked in the past where you may have to assign a seat. But that child was part of that conversation. Which desk do you think would be best appropriate for your learning needs? And in a month or so, or, or a couple of weeks, we'll reevaluate and maybe maybe sitting at a different desk on it in a different part of the room was sort of a way to kind of start having that child develop a little bit of flexibility in, in, their, in their learning. Mm-hmm. And how have you found that flexible seating affects the way you teach? What have you noticed about the way you feel and the way you interact with your students when you can be in a flexible seating classroom? So the the flexible seating really does make you feel like your classroom is a little more informal. And that tends to be my my approach to teaching. It's it's a series of conversations. Learning is not high stakes. Having them in their desks right now, you know, really does lend itself to that very traditional style of lecture teaching, which which I really don't enjoy. I would struggle to understand how desks in rows at, at this point is productive to any child's learning, especially when you think about the 21st century skills that we're supposed to be teaching. One of the things I've, I've definitely told my faculty ed students is that we have to be aware how our profession is very much influenced by tradition. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about the classroom 100 years ago, you can see that the, the changes that have happened in instructional practice. But if you think about a classroom 100 years ago, I would argue that the physical space in some classrooms today has changed very little. And to me, that's problematic because if our practice is evolving, our understanding of space and environment should also be evolving. Such a good point. Any final thoughts or advice on why you think teachers should pay attention to the physical environment of their classroom? I think it's just as teachers, we have to think about a lot of things on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, now I got to think about my classroom. So I, I think it's just, it's about really making things a little bit easier on yourself too. And if being thoughtful about your physical space can allow you to to almost support your teaching, why wouldn't we be doing that? So just even for the disruption piece alone, like if you know that you have students who struggle to sit in desks and if, you know, during COVID right now, we can see the challenges. So there has to be a better way than to require students to sit in one spot all day long, because as adults, we would find that very difficult. Like I've done in-service for teachers and towards the end of a two-hour workshop, people get pretty fidgety. Mm -hmm. So now imagine what we're asking nine-year-olds to do right? We're asking nine-year-olds to sit in one spot all day and be engaged for hours. So we couldn't do that as teachers at a full-day workshop without a lot of difficulty. So we, we need to evaluate that definitely for children. Definitely. Thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on the show and sharing your experience with flexible seating. You've really inspired us with possibilities. It was my absolute pleasure, and it, and it definitely makes me excited to think that Hopefully one day soon, my classroom can can shift back to this because I do think it's important. So thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a serious collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. And a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed.